Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. In November 1986, Stephen Sullivan was diagnosed with acute melogenous leukemia, also known as AML. He's going to tell us all about that cancer journey. Today, Stephen is a confidence coach helping people leverage their strengths to take action. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, so your cancer journey started a long time ago. Yes, it did. Pre- pre-Google, pre-all sorts of things that are available today to people to explain the start of my journey. I was a young man of, of 23, okay. married with two little kids, wow. two boys under the age of two. At the time, I was very sick and I thought, oh, I, I caught some kind of, you know, maybe bacteria or something that was holding me down, causing me to throw up and some of the symptoms and called my doctor and said, I think you need to check me into the hospital, you know, and give me some strong antibiotics or something. How long had you had those symptoms? Pretty intensely for about a week. Okay. And it was all pretty much around Thanksgiving time. Okay. And so the doctor was very accommodating and said, sure, I'll check you in. So I was checked in with a gastroenteritis, I think was the, her initial diagnosis. Um, but once I got in there and they did the tests, you know, I, I heard the three words the doctor never wants to say, the three words that no patient ever wants to hear, you have cancer. And at first, I, like many people, I thought, no, this can't be, you're misinterpreting something. Uh, my dad was a physician. I had him get on the phone and talk to my dad. And then my dad came back to me and said, son, this is serious. You need to listen to them. And then I think it's when it sucked into me that, yeah, I have cancer. Uh, you know, at that point in time, they knew it was, it appeared to be a leukemia. They weren't sure exactly what the type was. And they had some testing to do to figure that out. And so that was my introduction. I was in the hospital already, had to face that as a young man. And you know, as I laid there in the bed, some of the initial thoughts that came to me is, okay, I'm going to die. You know, it might not be today, but within two years, I'm probably going to be gone. And I began to think about what does that mean? And my heart was moved, you know, particularly towards my wife and kids. It's like, Who's going to take care of my wife and provide for her? Who's going to raise my sons mm. to become men? And that passion led me to begin to think about how to face each day and to how to live fully each day. And so I adopted a mindset that I call embrace today. And there's three aspects to this that I think if people follow, they will truly have a full day. Uh, the first being, be aware of what's around you. 
there's so much beauty around you, stop and appreciate it. Whether it's a bird singing, a flower on the street, uh, maybe a smile from somebody. Uh, there's numerous things that are gonna occur during your day that you can just soak in and absorb. The second was to create memories with others, with friends, family, because time is short. And I thought, I want them to have memories of me, hopefully good memories of me through creating, you know, the kind of interactions that lead to positive memories. And then the third thing was to let the people that you know, or the people that you love, know that you love and care for them. To not postpone that off, not think, oh yeah, they know I love them, but to tell them, to embrace them in whatever way to communicate to them that they are loved. And so that's how I went forward through my, my treatment. So I want to dig into the treatment a little bit. So I want to take you back there. I know it's been a really long time. Um, you were already in the hospital. They had run enough tests. Um, can you tell people what AML is, you know, what type of cancer that is? Um, you gave us an idea of the symptoms. And uh, what did they decide about your treatment at that time? AML is a, blow, is a bone marrow cancer. It affects the white blood cells. And so I was in acute stage, that's what the A stands for, which meant my white blood cells were uh, multiplying exponentially and they were all immature white blood cells. So where you as a human and an average might have 4,000 white blood cells, I was pushing 300, 400,000. So almost a hundred times what was normal, and these were not normal white blood cells. And what I didn't realize at the time is, is it nearly killed me because the white blood cells flooded my lungs in such a way that I was having trouble getting oxygen. And they put me in an oxygen tent. And one of the most powerful experiences I had in the hospital was during that time. I often tell people that I feel like I was falling asleep in the arms of God. There was such a powerful sense of peace that overcame me through that period that I had never experienced before in my life and I've never experienced since. So I see it truly as a, a supernatural encounter with God at death's doorstep and he chose in his mercy to send me back and see me through that night. Uh, several weeks later, I was talking to my doctor, my oncologist about that. And he said, Steve, when I saw you that day, I didn't think you'd live through the night. Was this that day when you got diagnosed? I don't know if it was that day or the day after. It was pretty soon because I don't think I had started chemotherapy yet. Okay. I think it was probably day three that they brought the chemo in. And the, this chemo is very toxic. The, the nurses have to wear rubber gloves because it's so acidic. Uh, my dad, who's a physician, would joke with me that, you know, son, it would be better for them to flush Drano through your system than the chemo drugs they're giving you. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a skull and crossbones on the chemo drugs. 
I've seen it myself. It's, it's crazy. It really yes, is. It's so toxic. And again, the goal of that was to kill off the bone marrow to such a point, not totally, but to such a point that it hopefully eliminated enough of the cancer cells that when the bone marrow came back, it would be healthy. So what, what did the doctor say? Like, what was your treatment plan? What was your wife's reaction? And what were your expectations? The treatment plan was pretty standard back then. They said that they would do three rounds of induction with chemotherapy. So I was in the hospital three different times, basically going through the same regiment of chemo uh, that, again, initially hits your body. You go through almost a period where it's not so bad. And then all of a sudden your body crashes and you get really sick and nauseated and you you battle through that. And it's, it's only by the, the gift of people giving blood that you stay alive. I mean, I had over 600 blood products in my count. You know, that's from people who helped keep me alive during that period of time. You know, my wife was there supportive the whole way. She was really a trooper and my helpmate during that time. And I, I appreciate her. But one of the things, if I had to go back and, and wish I knew at the beginning when I know now, is I didn't realize how much of an impact it would have on the caregivers. Mm, yeah. You know, as, a, as a cancer patient, you're focused on yourself, staying alive, all the stuff that you have to go through, it makes it challenging for you to reach out and give and take care of the needs of others. Oh, sure. And, and as a patient, you should be focused on those things. I think that's okay. Yes, I, I agree. But I, the reality of that is if you're married and you've got a spouse or you've got kids, they may, you know, feel that loss. Yeah. You're still alive, but they may feel that loss. Like I don't have a partner. I don't have a father. Um, and it has a heavy toll uh, on families. And so, you know, the support of the community, the, you know, it, we were part of a church. They were very supportive. Uh, so whatever groups that you're involved with, you know, bring them in to help gain support, uh, especially for your loved ones. You know, they'll focus on you too, but they sometimes need reminders to, hey, check on the family members. Yeah, I agree. I think there's there are not enough um, resources for caregivers. And I actually know one caregiver who hates that word caregiver because she felt like she really was able to lean on her husband. He was the patient. He has since passed away, but she felt like she was able to lean on him. She was able to talk to him and, um, and she felt like they still had very much that, that partnership. Um, and so she's not a big fan of the word caregiver kind of cracks me up. Um, but, she, but she's one of the few people I know who would say that most people are saying what you would say is that, you know, the patient is so focused on getting well and the treatment and what's going on in their body and their mind that the caregiver needs to find support elsewhere. Like you said, other family members, the community, um, what was your expectation uh, of, of the treatment? I mean, did the doctor, give you a timeline or the doctor said, 
everything's going to be great. I mean, did you have any sort of expectation? Well, they laid out some expectations in terms of, you know, three rounds of protection. And, and basically the oncologist said, you know, you'll go through it, you'll recover, hopefully, and we'll let you physically rebuild some of your strength, then we'll bring you back in for the next induction. So depending on how you do after your induction, it could be, you know, almost a month on month off type of thing. In my case, that that wasn't the case. I think I completed all three in nine months in part because at one point in time, I came down with a serious illness that put me back in the hospital. Uh, and at the time they tested me because my liver was not doing well and they weren't sure if it was the chemo. Uh, the doctor came back and said, well, we're not sure. You don't have hepatitis A, you don't have hepatitis B, but it could be uh, this other version of hepatitis that we think's out there that we currently call non-A, non-B. <laughs> Which, it became C, right? Yeah, which yeah. became C, you know, about six years after I received all my treatment. Yeah. And this was a also a period of time, if you remember, if we lived during those mid-80s, that there was the big HIV scare. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I was a teenager, but my mother was a nurse. And that was the one floor. My mother would not work on the HIV floor. She would not do it. Uh, you know, and I, I mean, that was a time where no one really knew, right? They really exactly. didn't know. And, and she, she would just say, Hey, I have kids. I'm not doing it, not doing it. And it was very difficult for them to find nurses to work the HIV ward. Yeah, I, I can believe it. Now today that's different because there's a greater understanding of, yeah. of that as well. And there's part of me that didn't really fear picking something up in the blood uh, unfortunately, later it was discovered that that incident I had was basically a hepatitis C infection that became a chronic hepatitis C that I carried really? for, for three decades, actually. So no. I got rid of it recently, but yes. Did it come from a, one of those blood transfusions? Because you it got did. so many. Oh no. Oh gosh. Well, and they weren't testing for hepatitis C. Yeah. Oh no. They no, they weren't testing till ninety-two, I think. So yeah, exactly. In the early nineties, they finally had a test for it. And I think it was maybe in ninety-four when I went in to just be retested, you know, for peace of mind to say, did I pick up HIV? Did I pick up uh, hepatitis? Did I pick up that we discovered that, yeah, I picked up hepatitis C. Wow. So that's a no, whole nother journey. <laughs> that is a whole nother chronic illness journey. Yes. Right. Wow. Oh gosh. How crazy is that? So you, but you got through that time with your liver. You got through that. I got through that, went back in the hospital for the second induction. The third one was delayed because of wisdom tooth. <laughs> they wanted to <laughs> They were worried about infection of the wisdom teeth, so they wanted to pull those. Uh, so once I got those pulled, then they allowed, they brought me back in for the final. And, you know, I responded very well to the first induction. So the second and third were just kind of like, we're hammering at home kind of okay. thing. And at that point in time, I expected 
you know, I've achieved remission. This is behind me. I'm living my life going You're done, forward. right? Like, I'm done. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm done. And I went back to work. I worked for almost a year when I saw the doctor, you know, because there's they always want you to have X number of follow-up visits. So that they Before you tell us out. what happened next, what, what did you do for a living at that time? I was in IT. So okay. I was a product manager uh, working for a software company producing software tools. Nice. And so it was, it was a great, great job. I loved it. But basically that year later, the doctor came back to me and said, Steve, you've relapsed. Did you have any idea? Did you feel it? Did you? I No, I didn't. I didn't. The doctor later said that he saw signs that caused him to be concerned. When he told me, he almost did it in a gleeful manner, like, yeah, I finally solved the... <laughs> and I was like, hold it. <laughs> That's Wait. not good news for me. <laughs> so what did he see that made him concerned? Did he Probably just from the blood tests going on, he might have seen some um uh elevation of some okay uh, different things that pattern going in the wrong direction yeah exactly um and so as i faced that second time i really questioned whether to even pursue any more treatment why is that you have to tell us because one i knew that the chance of survival was small. Uh, first time I went in, at that point in time, the stats were about 22% for a five-year survival for okay. AML. Today, it's a little bit higher. It's closer to 27, 28%, but it's not significantly greater. Uh, in the adult version, you'll hear children, which is ALL, acute lymphocytic leukemia, they have a very high rate of cure for children. Uh, still, most of the kids that die of cancer die of ALL. And so as I looked at that, one of the things I realized in the hospital is you go through a lot of miserable treatment and going through treatment is actually a, what I call almost a gamble where you're saying, okay, I'm going to put my life on the line to go through this treatment that could kill me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and give up the good days I have, because you know, at that point in time, I was, my health was still relatively good. I had many good days. So it's like taking all, all these good days, putting it on the table, rolling the dice to hope that by the time I get through this, I can win more days. Uh, and so I, I, can sympathize with people who decide I've had enough treatment. This is it. I'm going home. Uh, and I encourage family members, if your partner or whoever who's suffering gets to that point, to let them do that yeah. uh, because they've they recognize the suffering versus life is that balance is not what they want. So, uh, what made you move forward and do treatment for the second time? It was my faith. As I, as I prayed about it, I felt like God saying, Steve, go one more time. So I, I agreed to go. And the second time around, they gave me a newer chemotherapy at the time uh, called high-dose Aracea. 
uh, which was more extreme, more potent than the, than the chemotherapy I had before. I responded very well to that, uh, achieved remission. Uh, in the, but yet, even while I was there, you know, the doctors were honest with me to say, Steve, you know, we, we've successfully achieved remission again, which is great. But because you relapsed, you're probably going to relapse again. And we would say you probably have less than 5% chance to be alive in a year. Oh, gosh. And so I thanked the doctor and said, thank you for your honesty. But I told him, as far as I was concerned, I was either 100% alive or I was 100% dead. There's no 5% in between. <laughs> so, you know, I went forth to live my days as long as I could. So that, that could lead to the next question of, well, why did you get a bone marrow transplant? Yeah, that is often associated, right, with leukemia. Yes. So that is, that's... that is really standard treatment is get you into remission and then get you into a bone marrow transplant. Well, I looked into the options that were available to me during that period of time, and there were only two options. One was autologous, where they take your own bone marrow, they may treat it, they may do something, they zap your body, maybe through uh, radiation, maybe through a very heavy dose of chemotherapy, and they kill off your bone marrow. And then they give you your bone marrow back to reseed and grow. Uh, the other option was through siblings. And I had an older sister. And so we had my sister tested. And she came back what was classified as a secondary match. They looked at five blood markers for matches. And she matched on three of the five. Okay. So, you know, if she matched on two or less, they would have would have ruled her out. But at three, it's like you're right on the borderline back then anyway. Was this before there was um, a bone marrow registry? Because I'm on that registry to, to yes. donate. Yes, it, okay. it was before there was unrelated donor Got it. Uh, type of transplants, the mud transplants. Um, I think those might have been in the experimental range towards the end of my treatment. Uh, but it wasn't really presented to me as an option hmm. at the time. It was autologous or sibling. And so one of the things I did is I researched it. I mean, I was fortunate. My father as a physician, had access to medical libraries. He could pull the studies for me to look at. You know, there are things that you could potentially Google and get today online yourself. Back then, yeah. there was no internet <laughs> to go get, find these things. You went to the library. Uh, and so as I researched it, I began to see how autologous, people who went through autologous as AML, I mean, there's other people like breast cancer people, other that go through uh, autologous transplants, and they have a great success. But with AML, what I saw was the level of relapse was pretty frequent. And oftentimes, a person would go through multiple autologous transplants till maybe three years down the road, they passed. Wow, that's um, brutal. Because again, cancer's in your bone marrow. Yeah. Um, and so then on the secondary, when I looked at the secondary matches, I saw the high risk of bone marrow rejection. Sure, yeah, I would think so. And, and if you ever read what it's like to go through bone marrow rejection, 
it is not a pretty picture. It is, it is a very uh, awful way to die. Oh, gosh. And, and so that, those were my two options. And I had experts on both sides of that fence. And what I did then eventually is I went to my autologous physician and said, what do you think of the secondary match program? And he said, Steve, you'll have a high risk of um, bone marrow rejection and I wouldn't do it. Okay. So I went to my second- I see where you're going with this. Secondary match person. (laughs) And asked the same question, what do you think of autologous program? And he said, well, you're likely to relapse and I wouldn't do it. (laughs) And so I went back to my doctor to ask this question. I said, since I have to be in remission before I go through a bone marrow transplant, if I go through a bone marrow transplant and live five years, how do you know it was the transplant that cured me or the remission that cured me? Oh, great question. I love it. And the doctor, the doctor said to me, we can't, we won't know. All we can tell you is the chemotherapy has a low chance of success. And so in other words, because what they had to offer has a low chance of success, they're looking for what more can they do? And transplants was the next step for them. Uh, And today with, you know, the donor bank and the unrelated donors coming in, there's a, there's a good success rate. If, if that had been available to me today, I might've gone down that route. But as it turned out, because I had all that feedback, I said, hey, this is my decision. I'm making it. I'm gonna live with my remission as long as I have it. Oh, good for you for just, for, for finding that decision for yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. It's back to, I know something that's dear on your heart, patient advocacy, you know, and advocating for yourself. And I encourage all patients to learn about the disease, um, ask questions about their disease and be a member of the decision-making process. Uh, Don't, Don't advocate your decision, you know, just because you think I'm not a doctor and that's a doctor, so I should listen to them. No, the doctor's going to make what the decision based on what he knows from his scientific study. He may not make it based on who you are as an individual. Oh, I don't think they ever do. That are important to you. So uh, I'm an example of doing that. And uh, I've lived 32 years past that decision. Oh, you're a great example. I mean, I love that you've got more than one opinion. I love that you did research and, and to your point, you, you had access to research that other people might not have had access to at that time, but you, you got a second opinion, you did the research and then you just really looked at your life and what you wanted and made that decision that was best for you. And that sort of segues into my question. Um, do you think that there's a... Tr- tendency in that Hippocratic oath to do no harm and coming out of the good intention of making people well, do you think there is a tendency specifically in cancer to over-treat? That's that's a good question. I don't know if I've thought of it from that standpoint. What I have seen is physicians tend to push what 
they know. Mm. So if you go to a surgeon, they're going to say surgery is the way to treat your cancer. You go to an oncologist, they may say chemotherapy is the way to treat your cancer. Kind of like, again, when I went to the sibling transplant place, they're only going to push sibling transplants. You go to the autologous place, they're only pushing the autologous. So that's, it's important to know where your medical advice is coming from, from that standpoint. Yeah, and very I, true. I, I do think there's a lot they don't know. And I, and I used to, uh, well, I still kind of jokingly tell people that oftentimes when I look at treatments, I think they're basically 20th century leeches. In other words, if you go back several hundred years, the primary choice of treatment was leeches because we had to bleed people. And how, how successful was that? It wasn't successful. And there's a, I think there's treatments out there today that are equally like leeches. Their, their benefit is minimal. It hasn't been proven and it might even be a detriment. There's a, there's a great TED talk. I might have to put a link to it now where a physician talks about the number needed to treat, which is a number that all physicians know, but they don't discuss. And it's the number that was needed to treat before there was any efficacy whatsoever. And, it, and it's not a number that that is often talked about or published, but, but physicians know. And he used the example of um, cholesterol lowering medicine and, and the statins. And I think the number he said the number needed to treat before anyone had a positive effect from the statins was 300 people. And it just stunned the audience. It was, it was incredible. And so he said, he, he said, always ask what the number needed to treat was because it actually gives you more insight than the study, which might say, you know, 50% had a response or whatever. And, and um, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Oh, it, it, does, it certainly affects my view of uh, medical studies. I mean, I know people who, when they get to that end of like, there's nothing more the physician can do. And they start saying, well, isn't there a treatment study somewhere that I can get into? I've come to realize the only reason to get into a treatment study is to help somebody else. The treatment study is uh, going to allow them to learn what they need to learn. You'll be fortunate if it really helps you. I'm going to slightly disagree. I think it just depends because I know a lot of people whose lives were saved by clinical trials. But what's interesting of all the people I'm thinking of, all of them took it upon themselves or a family member did it to find that clinical trial. I don't think any of them, with the exception of one person, um, the doctor recommended the trial. Their, their doctors had given up on them and they found a trial. And so, um, but, but yeah, obviously you're furthering the science, you're helping people in the future, no doubt. But, um, but I do think there are cases where um, you, yeah. you, it can be a beneficial to you. Um, it, it definitely can. It, yeah. it definitely can. But, it, but it's hard to get into trials because they want the healthier patients. Yes. I, it's I, crazy. Saw that, I saw that when I was dealing with uh, hepatitis C, trying to get into some of those studies they, you know, it's like, you got to be this, 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 this. And it's like, you can't okay. be this, 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 or this. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. You know? No, I know. Um, Steve, in, in all of this, what was your, 
worst moment? Yeah, certainly one of the things I learned is that as awful as the physical is, it this too shall pass. So you can overcome that in time. Because uh, I did have, uh, I can remember when I was showed signs of, a, of an infection of some sort, they didn't know what it was. And they just bombarded me with everything, uh, including this drug that was nicknamed, uh, gosh, I lost it, but it came in a silver thing. It gave it in it. It made me so utterly sick. It was like, I never want to have that again. Mm. Um, so that physically was my worst moment. There are times like that. But the mental battles are the things that can linger and stay with you uh, through the whole process. You know, for me, probably the biggest one is actually what occurred afterwards, which I don't know if we have time to go into. But as I mentioned, my family was so important to me. Yet through this process, I lost my family. Uh, my wife was told that I would die. And so she, in her reaching out to get support, developed an inappropriate relationship with another man, and that led to the destruction of our, of our family and our marriage. Oh, that, Steve. that was that was that part. That oh. pain was far worse than anything I went through in cancer. Oh gosh, I am so sorry. I had no idea. Oh my goodness. And your children were so young. They're just babies. Yeah, they're well, they're those, those two little boys are men now with their <laughs> own children. Oh so. gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh gosh, I, I, I can see how that would be much worse. Um, what was your best moment? You know, I tried to create a lot of moments that were fun. Uh, so for example, you know, friends would come and visit me. And in chemotherapy, the stuff I had, uh, sort of, I think like your sister, my hair, my hair fell out mm -hmm. and it doesn't just all fall out. It kind oh, of, yeah, not it, at all. No. It comes out in strands and <laughs> right. you know, over several days, it all comes out kind of thing. And as it started to come out, I could, you know, literally reach up and pull hair. <laughs> That's out. what she did. <laughs> you know? And so yeah, I, I'm kind of an honorary guy. So one day, these two uh, friends came in to see me. And, and again, you're coming into somebody who's young, who's potentially dying. And they were, in a sense, scared to be there, kind of like, what do we say to this person? We don't know what to say. Uh, but they asked the typical question of how are you doing? And so I was sitting in my bed, and I just put my head down. And I said, I'm just so I can't take this anymore. And then I pull out these two big <laughs> hair and they go white, literally. <laughs> and I say, I say to them, okay, guys, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm really yeah. kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. My sister, before her hair could fall out, shaved it into four mohawks and called it her quad hawk and it really looked amazing on her but 
when she started to lose her hair, same thing. She just pulled a tuft of one of the mohawks out. She was like, oh, this looks really bad. And so she um, had it shaved again. So like one side was like a quarter of an inch. The other side was like half an inch. And it was weird. I don't know why, why shaving it made a difference because her hair follicles ended up not falling out and she, her eyebrows thinned, but they never fell out. Her eyelash was started to fall out, but they would grow right back. So she never had that totally bald sort of shiny hair, you know, bald head that the other, you know, pediatric cancer patients had. And so many people thought that she shaved her head on purpose, especially when she had days where she had more color in her cheeks. They didn't know she was sick. And, and it was really, really interesting. And again, I don't know why, why that happened. Um, and, and at one point she was really tired of it. She said, I want to get rid of these little like tiny pieces of hair on my head. We yeah. tried Nair and Nair didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, obviously I was surprised by it. So I had hair and I had, I think, shoulder length hair at the time. Oh, you were really cool, huh? <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I'm a cool guy. Um, <laughs> But after that, yeah, I would shave my head before going in because it was like, I don't want all these little pieces of hair lying around yeah. on my pillow and bed and yeah. and stuff. And uh, the interesting thing for me is after that, going through all that first round of treatment, my hair grew back in curly. I have heard that. Yes, I've heard a lot of people have told me that. And so for a year... It was great because I had all these women coming up and feeling my hair, <laughs> giving me all this attention. Like, are those real? It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, how did you get those? And I'd say, well, it's a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollar perm. Oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. I've heard that happen to a lot of people. That's so interesting, right? That it, it body is, changes. When I went in my second round, it all fell out and I came back normal. <laughs> So I lost my curls. <laughs> oh, well, your body reset, right? Yeah, it did. Oh, gosh. Um, so you said this before, but I like you to restate it again. What is that one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? Pretty much the toll that it takes on the care uh, takers, the givers, the people that surround you. You know, I didn't realize it at the time, but now that I do, they're going through more emotional battles than they are physical battles. You're going through a physical battle with some emotional things attached to it, but everything to them is mental. And oftentimes the mental is the most worst part of all these battles. It's not the physical, because the physical, like I said, you can suffer the pain and then 24 hours, it's gone. So definitely, I wish I'd I'd known that and could have maybe in some way talked more with my wife about those things. Um, it's hindsight at this point in time. If you could do only one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., you only get one, what would it be and why? I knew you were going to ask this question. And having worked in healthcare, having grown up in a medical family for so long, I am very close to it. To some degree, it is hard for me to name one thing. I know. <laughs> um, certainly, I think one of the things that needs to, to be considered, and I know that they're always considering this, is patient load. 
you know, some hospitals are worse than others in terms of overloading the nurses and the nurses, you know, my wife has been a nurse and, and you'll hear these horror stories. They don't have time to, to go to the bathroom, to have lunch, you know, and uh, it's a challenge for them uh, in taking care of patients. Okay. Wow. Thank you so much for being very vulnerable and sharing what happened in your personal life. Um, are you ready for a little fun? You want to do the Thriver Rapid Fire? <laughs> the Rapid Fire, yes. All right. Can't wait to hear your answers. I always get so excited. All right. Here we go. Beach, desert, or mountains? It's mountains. Yeah. Beach and beach and mountains. They <laughs> put them together. Yeah. Those those are what I want. <laughs> do you like? Have you been to Oregon, or do you live in Oregon? Because then you'd get both. No, I haven't. Um, nor have I been to Hawaii where you get kind of both. Uh, usually I either go west into Colorado into the Rockies or get to the west coast, east coast for the beach. Got it. Where do you live now? I should have asked that at the beginning. Chicago. Oh, all right. Beach Boys, Beatles or Rolling Stones? Uh, the Beach Boys. I love the Beach Boys. What is one word that best describes you? Probably caring. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Probably Amazing Grace. And what is the last meal you want to eat? Uh, probably steak and lobster. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. The last Third person. <laughs> yeah, but why not, right? Uh, last person you want to see? Uh, my family, definitely. And the last words you will speak? I love you. Aw. And aside from Cancer U, what is one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And also be sure to tell us how people can get in touch with you. Certainly for those that are dealing with blood cancers, like leukemia, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society is a great resource for them. Uh, I'm also been active with the American Cancer Society, you know, so they're more general, but both those are excellent uh, resources, you know, that truthfully didn't exist when I went through it. And I'm glad that they exist today, thanks to technology. Uh, the best way to reach me is really through social media. Okay. Uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you want to connect and interact with me, connect with me on LinkedIn. I do also have uh, a presence on Facebook, but I only dip in, into Facebook one, once in a while. I enjoy connecting with people, engaging with people. Uh, for those that are battling cancer, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, again, as a confidence coach, I like to help people who are struggling to do something that they want to do. And if they have insecurities that are holding them back, I can be the coach that helps to, as you know, be a catalyst in terms of accelerating the process to find the confidence they need to take the steps to, to achieve what they want. So if people want to reach out to you about your coaching, can they email you? I, again, I'm best connected through LinkedIn. I haven't, okay. I haven't really spun up my 
my own website with my own email address. Once I do that, okay. then yeah, I'll have more specific email address that way. But right now, I, I just have my Google account. Okay. Oh my gosh, Steve, thank you so much for sharing your story today. You are welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.